When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Brotherless Night. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. So we've done some previous episodes about literary magazines, but I don't know if I've ever asked you to name your favorites. What are your favorites? Well, my favorite is New Letters, of course, which is published here at UMKC by, and the editor is my friend Christy Hodgen, and previously was Bob Stewart, both friends of mine. So I, I mean, I'm a back, and first of all, also that is a great literary journal. I remember going to Princeton and not knowing anything about it and sitting in Joyce Carol Oates' office and she had a bunch of copies of New Letters. And I was like, what's that? She's like, that's from Kansas City. <laughs> I was like, really? And I have ended up working at the place where that journalist is, is created. And our students work on it as well. So I will always say new letters. But of course, I will also add that I'm a huge fan of Freeman's. Of course, I mean, Freeman's is had an, it's had an incredible run. And its editor, John, is actually the reason that our show lives where it lives. We came here to Literary Hub because we admire his work. And he used to be the site's executive editor. Since 2020, he's been an executive editor at Knopf. He's also an incredible poet and critic, and somehow, because he likes to wear many, many, many hats, the past eight many years, hats. many hats, for the past eight years, he's also put out a hell of a magazine. But all good things must come to an end, and apparently that includes Freeman's. Almost exactly eight years after its first issue came out in October 2015, we're dedicating this episode to celebrating its final issue and its entire fantastic run. And to that end, we're joined by its founder and our friend, John Freeman. John's books include How to Read a Novelist and Dictionary of the Undoing, as well as a trilogy of anthologies about inequality, uh, including Tales of Two Americas, Stories of Inequality in a Divided Nation, and Tales of Two Planets, which features dispatches from around the world where the climate crisis has unfolded in, 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 at crucially different rates. His poetry collections include Maps and The Park. His work has been translated into more than 20 languages and appeared in The New Yorker, The Paris Review, Orion, and Ziziva. He's a former editor of Granta and a writer in residence at New York, and a former writer in residence at New York University. John, welcome back to the show. Hey, Whitney. Hey, Sugi. Hey, Omar. Uh, we're also excited to welcome another return guest, Omar Elakad, who was last with us in 2019 to talk about writing about climate change. And this time, Omar joins us in his capacity as a contributor to the last issue of Freeman's. Omar is an author and journalist, the winner of a Canadian National Newspaper Award for Investigative Journalism. He's reported from Afghanistan, Guantanamo Bay, and other locations around the world. His fiction and nonfiction have appeared in The New York Times, The Guardian, Le Monde, Guernica, and GQ, among others. His debut novel, American War, an international bestseller, has been translated into 13 languages. It won the Pacific Northwest Booksellers Award, the Oregon Book Award for Fiction, the Kobo Emerging Writer Prize, and was nominated for more than 10 other awards. The New York Times, Washington Post, GQ, NPR, and Esquire all included it among their best books of the year, and the BBC selected it as one of 100 novels that changed our world. His latest novel is What Strange Paradise, which won the 2022 Ken Kesey Award for Fiction. Omar, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So, John, running a literary magazine is no easy feat, and founding one is even harder. As you observe in the introduction to the issue, the world's a very different place now than it was when you began. In 2015, we were pre-pandemic. Russia hadn't invaded Ukraine. Trump had never been president. And while climate change was well underway, many people weren't thinking about it in the same way that we are now. What were you thinking about 
what eight years ago when you started this magazine? What did you hope to accomplish? And how did you get it started? A couple of things came to mind uh, at the time. One of them was that we were a couple of years into the revolution in our lives. It's not, I don't think, an exaggeration to call it such. That smartphones were the interruptions, the being constantly connected to the internet, the ability to film things and take a film with you on the subway or on a car ride. It's completely changed our idea of what life is and our access to information and actually our sense of ourselves in the world, the story we tell of ourselves. And around that time, I think um, publications were moving online rapidly, all being free. But I think I sensed, at least when, in my editorship at Granta, that people still wanted long pieces. They still wanted the chance to read on paper, and they still wanted to gather in person. So those kinds of things were part of the original idea behind Freeman's, to make it a home for long-form writing in, other, in any different way that it could come together. But also one thing that I was thinking a lot about at the time was just nations and nationalism. And I, it occurred to me when I left Granta that I, I had never really been around a magazine that didn't have inscribed in its DNA a sense of a national home. And I thought, what if I made a magazine that brought writers together from all parts of the world and didn't really make much of a deal about where they were from, what rank languages they were writing in, but try to group them together under a theme and see if that made some kind of you know, collective music. And those were the driving forces at the time. And um, it was a lot of fun to get it started. Um, getting it started was was not easy, but it wasn't really hard because I think the last thing I'd say about this is I was very aware that magazines either were highly dependent on one very wealthy individual or they were ensconced in a fundraising um, capacity, either at a university or, or on their own. And I thought that there was still a middle model for literary journals and that would mean just coming to the to the production of the magazine by um latching on to someone's already existing production structure so that meant you know a publication uh or really a publishing house there always used to be magazines scribner's had one double had one um a lot of european publishers have them still um and so i approached grove and said you know would you give us some of your excess capacity for a little bit to publish this magazine and we'll publish it as a book and see if we can not lose too much money. And Morgan was all for it. So um, I think, yeah, the fact that it doesn't have a national home, the fact that it is so globally minded is one of my favorite things about the magazine. And I also have always admired uh, your gift for picking a theme and thinking broadly and inventively about how people fit in it. And, and, uh, Freeman's themes have included arrival, family, home, the future of new writing, power, California, love, change, I have some, animals. I have some here. My fave, you know, like my hardcovers. I'm showing they're them so, on YouTube. You can see them. They're very beautiful books. They're yeah. they're gorgeous objects. I mean, like they're just so beautifully designed. Um, There's home. Yeah, and, Michael Salo does the covers. He's a genius. They're so gorgeous. Um, Thank you. Which was, I think, also, I don't know, like I had, I've, you know, sometimes you pick up a magazine and it doesn't look, I don't know, it doesn't look beautiful. And then, I don't know, you attend to the writing. Are you trying to make way. a comment without <laughs> insulting all other magazines? Um, I, would, I just why not celebrate that though? I mean, I I think public <laughs> publication. You remember what it's like when you first see your, you know, you when you're first published, you could be published on the side of a paper bag, but but as <laughs> as your publishing life continues, you start to realize that there is some something other than finery in it. Um, and in a world where objects are sold to us more and more, and we don't have a huge amount of choice over what those objects are, why not celebrate the fact that a book is a book and can be beautiful? And so I, I, um, I was really keen to get Michael to work on Freeman's with me because he had worked with me at Granta. As you remember, he was, um, he came in after the work issue that you were in, Sugi. Um, God, what was that? That was 13 years ago. Um, when yeah. a, a section of your recently published novel appeared, um, I'm pretty sure that was from the That's novel, right. wasn't it? It was. And I mean, that was the last cover that I did with someone other than Michael. Um, that was John Gray, who's a br brilliant British designer. But I thought, what he if he designed had... the cover of Brotherless Night? Yeah, well, he's he's, <laughs> he's also one of the best around, I think. Um, I mean, I, there's also Linda Huang at, at Knopf, who I work with. But anyway, that's beside the point. But having having you know artful covers to me seems key, very key to the 
the center of magazine publishing because you have to draw people to something that maybe they don't know exists or they don't know what it is. And Michael's very good at conceptual kind of jokes that are in, you know, in, in the covers themselves. His, um, his first uh, cover for Granta was the sex issue, which had that purse on the cover, um, yeah. which has I've since seen mimicked in many other covers. So it's been, um, you know, working with him to, to try to continuously make something that make that people want to pick up is has been just so much fun. I feel like you could you would know even if a if a Freeman's I don't know if a Freeman's cover appeared somewhere and, and didn't say Freeman's on it, you would instantly know. I feel like where it was where it was from. It so um, swiftly had an identifiable aesthetic um, and and all these simple and powerful themes. So how did you pick all of those themes? And do you see any kind of arc um, that the magazine has had over its 10 issues? I did without trying to have a David Attenborough voiceover want there to be a kind of arc um, through life, you know, arrival, family, home, um, power, uh, California is a is a sort of sidebar, but love, change, animals. There, you can kind of imagine that being a developmental cycle, and so I, I didn't choose arrival before the first pieces be, began to arrive, and so, you know, with with work, the issue that you were in at Granta, that that was chosen kind of in advance, and we were looking for pieces themed to work, um, and telling writers that. Whereas for the first five or six or seven or eight pieces that arrived for the first issue of Freeman's, I was really just trying to get pieces from writers I loved. And then suddenly I thought, Oh, these are all about arrival. Um, and family was a, um, a failed humor issue. Um, <laughs> and, really? And people, yes. It, people kept turning in and pieces that were really funny, but weren't, weren't, um, or they were about family, but they weren't quite funny enough to be pure slapstick. But when you thought of them as as family, you think this is a an, an amazing essay, and you know family does tend to be at the heart of what's funny in our lives, whether we like it or not. So that that those kinds of surprises became part of the pleasure of working on it, and and you know with a geographic theme like California, I had to choose in advance. Um, but most of the themes kind of evolved out of what the pieces were as they were coming in. Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. So we're going to talk to, uh, we're going to have Omar read from uh, his piece in the collection, but I wanted to ask you one last nuts and bolts question about Freeman's because, um, you know, you were editor-in-chief, as you've mentioned, of, of Granta, which is an internationally known literary journal, uh, like Freeman's has become. Um, and you mentioned working with Morgan Entrican at Grove to help his use his excess publishing capacity, which I didn't know, actually, that's that's new information to me, but... Is that all you needed to do? How else did you fund the magazine? How much does it cost to produce an issue? Did you have staff? How does all this stuff work? Are yeah, you insane? It is a good way to lose a, a, a not an insignificant amount of money pretty quickly. So I, I didn't want to fundraise. Um, Morgan put up the editorial budget um, for every issue and, and assumed the production costs. And then we created a, a, an agreement where... Um, it sort of split the proceeds of each issue in half once he had earned those back. Um, and I don't have, I didn't get a salary or a paycheck from it. So I, I knew from the beginning that this would be, I, this would be like an unpaid job. Um, but I was that fine. That sounds a lot that. like what Sugi and I do on here on the podcast. Yeah. Sometimes it's, you know, you just have to do something because you really want to do it. And I, I also knew that that would perhaps put a limit on how long I could do it. Um, but the other, but I did probably put in a couple hundred thousand of my own money in terms of promotion over the 10 years, you know, because writers don't get flown from one place to another sometimes. Um, and it's, that's 
you know, that there's no way around that. Um, and would I do it again? Absolutely. You know, um, but it's, it's also just, a the, 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 the reason to stop is not money. It's rather the, the magazine itself is like a living thing. It's like a party, you know, it's like a dinner party and you all know when a dinner party is sort of winding down. That doesn't mean it's a failure. It doesn't mean it's died. It doesn't mean that people have um, not enjoyed themselves. It just means that it's kind of finished its orbit, you know, and, and no dinner, you know, goes on forever. Well, not everyone knows that because I find that when I have dinners, I have to come in and tell people that it's over. All right. You're, you're, you're out. Is that what you're, you're doing now? It's time to go. <laughs> Flicking the lights. No, I just, it, I feel like by, by coming to the end and calling the end conclusions, it, it allows this to happen hopefully naturally rather than, you know, having the lights shut off and, and kicking people out. Um, and that's, that, that can be the case for a lot of journals because people are, um, you know, they're working in capacities where they're dependent um, on the job that they have when, when those jobs are paid. And I'm not, I, I think it's a shame when that happens. It shouldn't happen that way. People's, labor should not be taken for granted. And so when I set up Freeman's, I, I didn't want anyone's job to ever be on the line if the magazine went away, mm -hmm. you know, and Morgan didn't have enormous excess capacity that he basically was able to convince some people at Grove to work on it. And so the managing editor was the managing editor for Freeman's and, you know, managing editors do not have excess time, but for some reason, Julia Berner Tobin, who was the managing editor for eight or nine issues, really loved working on Freeman's and made time out of her time to do it. Um, so I was. Really and you could lucky get copy regard. editing help through there or stuff like that. Exactly. Yeah. All of that. And we had one copy editor, Kristen, who was Kristen Gabowski, who's the copy editor for all 10 issues. Um, and that was really lovely. And so there were aspects of it that it was like, um, it had stability and a, a kind of group. Um, but, you know, I, it's a lot of luck to put together a million words in 10 issues that make sense and that have a coherence that fit the theme. You know, Omar is someone whose work I admired for a very long time. Um, and this was the time that he had a story that, and a story that actually dovetailed with my theme. And so I can now depart um, the magazine sort of happy because someone whose work I loved for a while um, is in it. And, and, you know, sometimes that, 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 that doesn't happen. Well, let's talk about that story. Uh, Omar, that story is called Pillory, as you know, but our listeners may not know. Um, can you talk about the origin of that story? And I've, I've been published by John in one of in his two tales of two Americas book. So I'd have a little bit of sense and Sugi has been as well. So we have, you know, because you talk to the listeners about how, how you ended up in Freeman's. Did the story exist before you talked to John about it or did his request prompt you to write the story? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was, there's this literary organization called Hugo House up in Seattle. They do a lot of great work and they had asked me to teach a class. And um, as part of it, there was a reading. The teachers all read, we came up to Seattle and, and uh, did a reading and when they when they had um, when they had first contacted me, they said, um, you know, we're really thinking about the idea of reincarnation. That's our that's our theme for um, for this reading. And so I was sitting around for months, sort of hammering away at a story about um, reincarnation and what I thought about the fundamental connection between the idea of living again and again and the fundamental unhappiness that would be related to that. This notion of boy, I've made so many bad decisions. Uh, but if I had a second go around, I would definitely make different bad decisions. But if I had a third go around, and I was thinking about that and how the only thing I was sure of if that kind of environment existed would be that we would have to build a massive bureaucracy around it just to keep track of all of the different ways that people would try to cheat and take advantage of each other. And so I sat down and wrote the story and I only sort of read it once. It, it never appeared anywhere. It never did anything. It was that night at Hugo House where I got up and I read. And then the other teachers got up and read stories that had nothing to do with reincarnation, like nothing at all. 
And at the end, the MC gets up and says, you know, we want to thank everyone. We'd also like to thank Omar for suggesting the theme of reincarnation. I was like, what are you talking about? You emailed me. Like I had no, it was a very bizarre night, um, but it was a good reading. It, it went, it went okay. And uh, a little while later, John got in touch and, and I had become familiar with Freeman's by that point and I loved it. Um, and initially I, I would have never dreamed to try and submit something or ask him if I could be in it because I was, again, I was, I was quite scared of the, the quality of the work in there. And then he talked about this idea of conclusions and I was like, well, this is, this is too close. Um, and so I worked on that story some more, sent it over to him and, and was genuinely scared. I mean, uh, John and I have a weird relationship because, um, you know, he came into Knopf and I didn't know if I was hoisted on him, if he had to sort of inherit me as a writer uh, against his will or like what, and I'm familiar with his work and I'm familiar with the breadth of his work um, and how really, really spectacular it is. I should say, I dislike him as a person. Yeah, we all have that problem. The worst. We're working to bring that up. Just genuinely nothing but bad (laughs) things to say about him. But, um, but as someone who's intimately involved with literature and clearly loves it, I was very, very scared. uh, And I shipped it off to him and clearly, um, they had, you know, uh, page limit issues and, and blank spaces across the thing. And they had to use it, I I suspect, (laughs) uh, which is how it ended up in there. But, um, it was, um, it was, it was really special for me. Um, because, more than I think any publication I've ever read, this one has sent me down some of the more spectacular rabbit holes that I've ever gone down. It's just even with this last last issue, um, that sense of oh, I've never heard of this person before, but this is an incredible piece of writing. I'm going to look up everything they ever did. I've gotten more of that from from Freeman's than I have out of just about any any publication I've ever read. So it was it was really fantastic to be a part of it, just at the wire. Um, well, hopefully someone think... is going to say the same, you know, when they pick it up of, of your work, like, who is this Omar Alakad? And then very quickly leave that rabbit hole, um, ha- having made a horrible decision. I mean, I, I hope so. Did I tell you that? I haven't told you this, right? So, so, um, so I submit this thing and, and before it comes out, the folks at Harper's get in touch saying that they, they want to excerpt it, which was amazing. And then last week, somebody emailed asking for the film rights. I mean, this story has sort of jumped to weird, weird places that I, I never, ever expected. So um, thank you for that. You'll be getting you'll be getting your cut if any of this stuff comes to comes to. I just fruition. can't wait till Omar has to give the most uh, wonderfully, lovingly pathological, self-undermining acceptance speech at the Oscars. Um, where <laughs> yes, only off the stage, right? I can the, fund another uh, ten years, uh, ten issues of Freeman's. We'll start it all over again. But uh, we worked together once on a piece that he he turned in for the Paris Review, which is I think the first piece of writing which I saw from him before it was published, and it was unbelievably beautiful and exquisite, and sort of like it had been in a in a wind tunnel, you know, like all the all the excess parts of it had been sanded down and because it was about his, his life it, w- it was remarkable in that regard and and when when he started to introduce the piece saying like here it is it's pretty ter- pretty terrible you could just don't worry just turn it down and now i know that if omar ever turns in something where he says this is amazing i'm gonna i'm gonna get really worried <laughs> i'm gonna have to hold up a copy of today's newspaper yeah 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 absolutely absolutely so Omar, um, Pillory is in conclusions, but it isn't, as you said, exactly about conclusions. It's about avoiding conclusions maybe forever. Um, could you set up the premise for our listeners and read a section? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, sorry, I'm setting up here. I'm never, I'm never used to, I, I do this podcast and, um, I, I don't know how you do it. I honestly don't. I, we've done 10 episodes and... I, um, I'm just not becoming any more technically proficient, which is why... What's I have the name of the podcast? We'll put it in the uh, show notes. <laughs> You're kind. It's called Without. Um, okay. Just really hard to Google. Just a single word. Um, so Ours has a bunch of dumb slashes in it that ruin everything <laughs> as far as SEO goes. So you're you're ahead of us there. Yeah, that's true. I guess you could have named your podcast like drop table or something that would have just destroyed the the technical side of it um anyway sorry that's why i have a mic in a cup 
right now because I'm not used to reading. Um, Pillory is a story about a world in which when anybody dies, there is a 50% chance that they will come back, that they will somewhere, some, somewhere somebody will be born, a baby will be born, that very quickly will show that they have all the memories of that person who died. It doesn't have to be in the same place. It could be elsewhere in the world. And so there's a 50% chance that you're coming back the first time around. There's a 25% chance you'll come back twice and so on and so forth. Um, and what this has necessitated is a giant bureaucracy to try and keep track of all of these people and what happens if you're parents and you have a child and that child turns out to be a fifth go-around, you know, someone with decades and decades and decades of previous memory. What are your obligations to them? And so there's a giant legal department, so on and so forth. And the story is written from the point of view of a person who works a very menial job in this giant department of reincarnation policy. Um, probably there's more things you need to know, but uh, I'm just going to read from the middle of it anyway, so I'm sure it's going to be uh, indecipherable. We want for impossible things. I always wanted to have known my father before I entered his life. As it was, I knew him only in his years of retreat, when he was already a member of that fraternity of underdone men who exist in silent, bitter conversation with the decisions they wish they'd made. I suppose a therapist would tell you that's why I ended up doing the work I do, the work of starting over. For the past 17 years, I've been an employee of the Department of Reincarnation Policy. No one stays still at the drip. Over the years, I've held half a dozen positions of no real consequence, as analyst or archivist or assistant, shuffling around from legal to adjudication to statistics, the latter office being my final posting. Though I don't know it yet when I get up in the morning, this will be my final day at the drip. By noon, I will resign and leave the building so suddenly that my manager and an HR rep will chase me out the front door, yelling something about paperwork and liability. It'll be a bit of a scene, but that happens here sometimes. Every morning, I take the bus to work, though there's a man on the same commute who doesn't like me. Most days, I find a seat far away enough from him. Through a phalanx of limbs, he might give me a dirty look before he loses interest. But every once in a while, there's no room to sit or stand except right next to him. And that's when he'll pepper me with impossible questions. Where are the lives you're hiding? Who decides who comes back? Do you get to judge yourself in the end? I only know to ignore him. And most times this riles him up, sometimes to the point of shouting. Once when this happened, an exasperated woman nearby stood up and marched to the front of the bus, where she asked the driver to do something. The driver shrugged and said, he's distressing. The woman nodded, thinking they were in agreement, but I'd heard the driver say this more than once before, and eventually I realized she meant distressing as a verb. I used to imagine the angry man on the bus as some kind of eighth or ninth go-around, his mind coming apart under the weight of so many half-departed lives. I used to do this with anyone whose way of being I couldn't understand. But now I find it comforting to adopt the bus driver's view of things. We are all of us going through each day, tired and tried, and with some grace or none, distressing. Thank you very much. Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is not on the script, but I was thinking about while you're reading and when I read that passage, like I'm teaching a creative nonfiction class right now. And I tell students they have to, particularly when you're doing a polemic, you have to like define terms like Tom Frank and his, uh, book What's the Matter with Kansas defines this term called the Great Backlash as a way of explaining what conservatives were doing in the like 80s, right? And what I love about that piece is like how easily you you quickly define these terms and that aren't don't exist in our language, but we understand how they work and like they fit really easily into the flow. But they the, the piece wouldn't work without you creating a terminology for what's happening. Yeah, I mean I, I spend a lot of my time um trying to think about the price of admission. Um, cause a lot of my stories end up in a place where there is a price of admission. You know, I, I, I wrote a story a while back called government slots about this world in which there's something like a post office and, and everybody gets a little box and whatever you put in that box is believed to follow you into the afterlife. It disappears the moment you die. And so the whole story, which has almost no plot to speak of is about what kind of things people would take with them if they thought it would follow them into the next life or whatever comes after. And so, you know, some of these boxes are full of Bibles, uh, resumes, condoms, you know, people have very different uh, ideas of what's coming next. But that was another story where I had to think about the price of admission, like what, you know, here's what you need to know about this setup, because once I give it to you, I'm not interested in that anymore. We're going on the sort of emotional aftershocks of that. Um, but it's something I have to think about a lot, and I I, I do it to varying degrees. I mean, it's very hard to do world building concisely, right? I'm just I, I think that that story does a great job. It's not a very long story and creates an entire world very quickly. Can you talk to us a little bit about um, as a writer how you you mentioned a little bit earlier that you had you were aware of Freeman's were reading it. When did you start reading it? You know, is and in your mind, is there such a thing as like a Freeman story? You know. Are there particular things that you value about the journal? We're trying to start somebody to do like a long book about this later, criticizing John for somehow doing something wrong and the people that he's brought into the novel, like, you know, like they do with Iowa. Yeah, no, I, I make fun of him a lot and then immediately send him like emails saying, please don't drop me. I beg you. Um, he He's... I mean, if I'm being perfectly honest, I, I my ignorance knows no bounds and and... The first time I came across Freeman's was when I was researching John. So the, the backstory, for whatever it's worth, is that in the middle of working on the edits to my second novel, this, this book called What Strange Paradise, my editor, Sonny Mehta, passed away. And in fact, the last trip I did before everything went to hell because of the pandemic was to his memorial service in New York. And I was in a really bad place. I didn't... I, you know, I'd sort of won the lottery with respect to my first agent, my first publisher, just, you know, you're a first time novelist and you have no idea what the hell you're doing. And suddenly you're put into this position where you're working with people who are among the best who have ever done it. And I didn't want to do anything else, uh, with writing as a sort of commercial endeavor. Um, and John comes into Knopf and I have no idea whether he asked for me to be working with him on, on another novel that still doesn't exist, that I'm still working on, or if he was asked to do, you know, like I, I have no idea what, what the backstory is. And I start looking up this guy and I'm like, oh, he has a magazine named after him. That's, that's something. Um, I guess I better read this thing. And I, and I fell into, I think Arrivals was the first one that I, that I picked up. And I just became obsessed with it. Um, and I, I it was a great introduction to the kind of person John is, which is, you know, the sort of person that you can sit with and, and say, you know, tell me your, your, your five favorite Nepalese poets. And he'll be like, just five? And, and he'll have to, you know, come up with another container, subcontainer to put it in because he, the extent to which he really cares about literature as an individual effort, but also literature and how it speaks, how these stories speak with, to one another. I think is unlike almost anyone I've ever worked with. And so that's how I became acquainted with, with the entire endeavor. Um, and so, yeah, it was weird. It was weird reading somebody's work and reading the, the thing they've created uh, before. I think we ever had, we had a discussion in person. Um, 
or no, we did. We did have a discussion in person at the Vancouver Festival when I had no idea why why you wanted to talk to me at all because I had no idea what was going on on the other side of this. Um, but it was part of my introduction of to to who John is um, as a literary mind, um, and and that is a facet that continues to to astound me. Vancouver is a great place. I go to these festivals in part in order to meet people like Omar. Um, and for the last 10 years, Vancouver Writers Fest has been generous enough to slap me out. And in exchange for me moderating an event or two, I get to mooch around and listen to people whom I don't know um, read. And it's it's been a, a wonderful education, not just in Canadian lit, but in literature from around the world. And Omar's frequently uh, um, roped in to, to moderate events as well as be in them. And so I'd seen Mo, um, Omar bo both on the end of questions and on the questioning end. And it's very unusual to see a novelist be able to do both. Um, you, you two are in particularly quite odd in that regard. Because <laughs> um, most, most novelists are world builders, but they're not necessarily um, journalists and in, interrogators. And both of you have worked in, in some capacities as nonfiction writers yourselves. And Omar, of course, has spent a lot of time um, as an overseas reporter, sometimes in conflict zones. And it's it's exciting when you see someone's mind um, framing stories by the questions they ask, um, and then you can see them do the, do that, but in the fiction way, which is to create um, sort of invisible structures of enchantment, which are asking questions but are not necessarily visible. So with you know American War, what what would happen if everything that ever uh, the, ever happened around the world as a result of America's imperial sort of flex? Um, happened within American borders. Um, what what would that feel like? Um, and you know, similarly, in what strange paradise? What what would happen if you reset the story of of Peter Pan, but like on the island of uh, of Lesbos, or or in the middle of the Mediterranean, with two children trying to walk to safety? And those, you know, he can he can kind of put up a, a conceptual pup tent, you know, with like three <laughs> gestures. Um, but I think that that there are some people who have worked as journalists and not, and are novelists. Colson Whitehead's another, um, where you can see that the skills are are related and and enhancing each other. So um, yeah, John, I appreciated you're talking a little bit about questions, and you wrote about that in your introduction to the issue, and you also write at some length about the late Barry Lopez, um, and you write about how keenly attuned he was to living, um, the intensity with which he paid attention to everything. And the issue includes incredibly a never before published story by him. And it also includes a never before published poem by the late Dennis Johnson. Can you talk a little bit about including those pieces in conclusions? Yeah, there's also a poem by uh, an 11th century Chinese poet who's translated by Wendy, Wendy Chen, um, who came to me as a submission at Knopf. Um, and I was just completely bowled away bowled over bowled over by these poems um Li Qing Zhao um who's sort of the regarded as as highly as uh Li Po um but has a, a kind of Sappho like quality to her poems they're poems of longing and love um and they feel the voice feels so immediate um and those poems have been known and been around they've been and Wendy's just done a, a new translation with the in the case of Barry and um uh, Dennis Johnson, those po pieces were found recently, as in uh, I, I'm friends with um, Barry's widow, the writer Deborah Gwartney, Um and when I went to Barry's memorial up in Oregon, in his uh, study, there was a poem open on a kind of pedestal facing the woods, which had been recently scorched from the one of the big Oregon fires, and it was a, it was a kind of poem that was about uh, stewardship. And I, I had no idea Barry had written a poem and it was dated, you know, 1980 something and it's Port Townsend. And I asked Deborah, I said, what is this? And she said, I think he wrote, wrote this as a broadside in benefit for Copper Canyon. Um, so I asked if at later, at a later date, I asked if we could publish that. And she said, absolutely. Cause it's a, it's a beautiful summary of all the ways in which maybe we underestimate our footprint on the world, but also um, how much more improved our lives would be if we saw stewardship as not an also, but as just as a primary function of our, our reason to live. 
Um, and in the course of laying that out, she, she wrote back to me and said, Hey, I've been looking through Barry's papers and I found this essay. Do you want to look at it? And she gave it to me on my birthday last year in Seattle when we were having an event for Freeman's. She was in the animals this year, Deborah was. And she has a harrowing, beautiful piece about, you know, driving out of the fire that, that eventually claimed most of their, a big part of their house that um, they survived, but was probably the beginning of the end of Barry's life. And, you know, they lived on a salmon river and, and the river was really damaged and the salmon suffered as a result of it. And in, in the course of this event, um, she just handed me the, a printout of this piece. And it's a gorgeous piece of writing of walking home along this river. And for whatever reason, maybe someone commissioned it and he never liked it or decided not to turn it in or maybe the magazine folded all th all those things could be very likely but it's a it's a perfect piece of writing and a perfectly observed walk home and it's at the end of the day so it, it felt like the most obvious place to begin the issue when i once i read it i want to say um my impression of what freeman's is like as a magazine and what makes it distinctive is is that it is all about friendship, and I, I feel like John, you're uh, uh, like the the right now, you know, an amazing friend maker in in the literary world, and not just like I'm only publishing my friends, but that you have all throughout your career gone out and sought out writers whose writing writing you liked, and then tried to become friends with them, and not only that, but encouraged writers to be friends with each other. I mean, through the magazine, through the magazine, people become friends by being in it together or by looking up their own work. You know, and this network of people that isn't, again, it isn't static. You're always finding new people, right? And bringing them into a network of friends that you have and have created. That's what I value about the magazine. But it's been your career also. I mean, we met because you wrote a bunch of reviews of my very first book, which were really helpful to me. But then you wanted to meet in person. And then we became friends. And that's how your careers looked like to me. And you had that event with uh, Jessica Hagedorn. Um, yeah, and, you helped us. You set that up at uh, Thinking Housing Works with the. Uh, yeah, that was that was a great conversation. That was twenty three. Stanley Crouch was there. He was, he was quoting Moby Dick, um, chapter and <laughs> verse. But I, I, you know, I think there's nothing greater than a, um, a a positive affinity among among people. It's how all the great things I think happen. You know, whether it's making a meal together or just pot biding time or you know. Um, falling in love you know you go to a, a friend's party and you meet someone and i you know i remember being young and and all my friends were funny all of them were like no one was boring like even the boring people were funny in a boring way and i wish there was a more space within literature for people to have that that casual naturalness about storytelling in which you're telling stories not just to pass the time but to kind of deepen and amuse each other and a lot of the, the events that I had at Granta ended with dinners. And in the course of the dinners, people would tell stories and not in like a peacocking way. They would tell stories because that's how you communicate. You know, something really complex can't be summarized. So you tell it in a story. And I wanted a magazine that felt like that, that felt like the kind of stories p people tell each other. And so in publishing people, I often, you know, in publishing Alexander Hemon, for example, I met Edgar Carrot who even Sasha Hemon, who is a great storyteller, bows down to, to Edgar's oral storytelling qualities, you know, and through Edgar, I meet other people. Um, and th the, there's a kind of endless loop that things can go on. And, you know, Sugi and we've, we've been in contact for a long time, but we've also had events together. And out of those events, you, there, there's new possibilities um, that I think, could kind of go on forever. And I, I just, I, I think that's an more, it sounds insular because it's friends recommending friends, but it's not like log rolling. It's actually um, very carefully adding to a, a room, new elements where you think this person would really suit, you know, this, this discussion space. Okay. We're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the 
we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Um, so yeah, this is all reminding me of, there's a phrase in your introduction, which I think is like cafeteria of happiness. Um, your notion of kind of how Freeman's would work at the beginning, which I just, I love that idea. So we can't mention every contributor to the final issue here, um, though John does in that excellent introduction. But um, John and Omar, I'd like to ask each of you to pick one piece in this collection, and I know it's hard to limit it to one, that you want to tell our listeners about and, and yeah, tell them about it. Omar, maybe we can start with you. Sure, yeah. Um, so everything John just described, if you think of the exact opposite of that, that's my natural impulse. I, I have two and a half friends in the literary world, uh, and especially writers I admire, I'm terrified of talking to. There's a writer up in Canada named uh, Leanne Beta Samasaki Simpson, whose work I'm just a huge, huge fan of. And we've, I think, been in the same room together like three times, and I'm always on the opposite end of the room. I've never worked up the guts. Um, to talk to her. So it, it's nice to have people like John in the world um, to do the heavy lifting that us socially inadequate people um, cannot do. I was thrilled to see a couple of names in here. Uh, obviously, that Dennis Johnson poem was, was very bittersweet. It's also a beautiful poem. It's a very short poem. Um, Gaith Abdullah Ahad has an essay in here. Uh, I think he's one of the best journalists working anywhere in the world today. But the one I want to sort of specifically highlight is called... It's a short story called... Um, on the occasion of our fourth divorce anniversary, uh, and it's by Lana Bastastich, who I, and my again, my ignorance knows no bounds, uh, but I, I had never heard of her or her work. Uh, but it's this very short story uh, whose subject matter is implicit in the title of the story. Uh, and I found it's a beautiful piece of work, but I'm, I'm always fascinated by writers who can give you the lightning without making it rain. This is a horrible metaphor, but whenever I have the lightning in my stories, it's I can't do it without the storm. And this is a very sort of quiet, I don't use dry in a critical sense, but, but dry story in which every sentence is lightning. And I'm fascinated by writers who can do that. So I am now uh, uh, an instant fan of Lana's work and will never, ever reach out to her in my life. Uh, but uh, But I know of her now because because of this anthology. Oh, that's so great to hear when someone falls in love with a writer through their story. And Lana wrote that in English. She normally writes in Bosnian, um, but she also speaks Spanish and other languages. And and this is one of the first short stories that she wrote in English. And it has such intense, deep rhythm because it's, it's almost like a syntactical circular breathing. You know, it's like one long kind of compound sentence as it folds in on itself, looking for the clue, the sort of poison drop that was there from the beginning in this marriage. And it's it's never really found. Um, it's just basically sometimes relationships fall apart for no reason other than it's it's not meant to be in, in a cosmic way. Um, I, I wish I could I could include every name in this question. It's cruel to make an editor do this. I know, John. I'm sorry. No, I'll I'll, I'll focus on on um, two. Um, I have to choose a poet just because I feel like poets always have a harder time. And um, I, I'm going to choose the poet that I I focused on earlier, who I'd never heard of until I got this submission from. Wendy Chen's um, translation. Um, FSG is going to publish this book, I think, next year. And I read these poems um, by Lee Gringsau, and they're they're like the best breakup poems in a in the world. You know, they could be songs. They're not happy. They're the the poet's kind of drunk. Um, she's basically writing to beloveds who have left her, um, and in in such a visceral way that it's like the, the the most astonishing record of heartache I've I've read in poetic form in a long time, and I read poetry all the time, um, and so it's thrilling to think that these new translations are coming, but also just that that the end of a of a of a love affair you can be left with something so beautiful and indelible even if it hurts, um, and 
there's something about this record and this compressed record of heartache that's that has the, the loveliness of a and perfectness of a bruise. Um, and then I'll, I also have to mention um, Haith Abdullahad simply because he was supposed to be in the first issue of Freeman's. And um, if you have a first printing of the arrival issue, his name is on the cover. Um, and we kept his name on the cover until the very last minute and he, he missed his deadline. Um, and I realized how few people read magazines closely when the issue came out. And I received only one email from a guy in New Jersey who says, what happened to the Abdullah Hod piece? Um, and it, it <laughs> had him on the show, by the way. So we'll, we'll include our episode with him uh, in the, well, uh, it only, it only took 10 more years for him to deliver. Um, and he's, he is an extraordinary journalist and this piece it's, uh, in, especially in the context of what's happening today in Palestine and Israel, um, it's a it's a harrowing one in that he's uh, Gaith is he's in Yemen and he's talking to various people and as war seems to loom closer and closer. He spent the last twenty years watching what war did to Iraq and Libya and Syria and in various forms Lebanon and Palestine and the failures of the sort of so called Arab Spring and. He's, he says, haven't you seen these things happen in all these places? And every every person says, no, it's going to be different here. And, and eventually he comes to the conclusion that you can only learn from your own war, um, which is a, a really um, bracing conclusion um, because we're often trying to, to apply conclusions of our own wars to other wars um, and, and they don't apply. Um, so it's, it's a really profound piece of reportage and um i've always loved finding pieces like that um or when writers are willing to do those kinds of things because um we're really dependent on reporters to tell us what's happening in, in various parts of the world yemen was a very dangerous place for reporters to go and case um doesn't make a whole lot of that in his piece um and i i'm so glad he turned it in and we could publish it this time on time well, those two pieces are excellent, but we want listeners to know that this book is filled with them, this issue of Freeman's. So don't forget to go out to your local independent bookstore and pick up a copy of Freeman's Conclusions. Also, you can see John and Omar and Tanya James talk about their work and this anthology at the Vancouver Writers Fest on October 20th at 8.30 p.m. at The Nest. We'll include information of that in the show notes if you're in the Vancouver area. And John and Omar, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thanks, Whitney. Thanks, Sugi. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNFPod, on Twitter at FNFTalk, on Instagram at fiction.nonfiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel, and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!